0: Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff
1: Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations
0: of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Hi, this is Jeff Boucher. Welcome to Mindspace. I'm here with Maya St. Clair, and we have a great show today with the great Walter Simonson's going to join us. Uh, readers of Marvel Comics will recognize that name instantly as one of the, uh, the key creators from the Thor comics, uh, the classic Beta Ray Bill comics, and uh, so many other things, Star Slammers, and uh, some movie comics as well that we're going to be talking about. Uh, and he's also part of a really cool project and before we talk to Walt uh, we wanted to tell you guys a little bit about that project which is coming from Zoop uh, who's a, a kiddo player in the comics field um, with crowd-funded projects with uh, outstanding artists and this one uh, is that Walt's working on is for John Paul Leon's uh, The Wintermen uh, which is a posthumous release for um cult classic and that's what this project's all about
2: yeah it's um available on zoop they've already blown the gates right off their crowdfunding goal and but you can still pre-order the book it's going to be extremely high quality with lots of rare art by a plethora of artists in tribute to john paul leon and the proceeds are all going to support uh the late artist family so it's a really wholesome project and it puts you in amazing company um, you can pre-order like the complete book you can pre-order prints signed prints uh, by artists uh, we were going through them it's got Bill Sienkiewicz Lee yeah. Weeks Sean Phillips Kim Young Gi who's going to be doing some stuff with heavy metal but I can't tell you but Dennis Cohen and yeah Walt and Joe Casada. more it's it looks absolutely stunning and we'll have a link to it in the description.
0: Yeah, and those are uh, and those names that you mentioned some really great talents and some good people too. You know, some people that are well known for their uh, way they carry themselves in the industry. Scott Dunbeer is over at IDW uh, for many years. Uh, He's uh, the curating force behind this uh, project, the editor, and he has such a great track record of uh, doing really, really uh, just archival quality retrospectives of some of the, the finest art accomplishments in comics so uh, I can't say enough about his work so um and it sounds like a really good cause I'm looking forward to, to reading uh The Winter Men myself uh it's a Soviet era uh sort of super soldier uh setup uh the book's 184 pages uh it came out in a trade paperback version in 2009 that's very hard to find uh and goes for some uh crazy prices on amazon for that reason so this is a uh cult classic getting uh it's due justice now
2: yeah it looks super dark gritty and pretty thrilling so
0: yeah it looks like kind of like a jason bourne meets uh winter soldier meets uh gorky park um
2: yeah you can preview some of the art because um mr simonson has posted you know hints of it on his twitter so definitely check him out on twitter it's super wholesome (laughs)
0: Yeah, and it's, uh, uh, it's pinups uh, for this art edition that the, the guests are doing, the, uh, the talented folks that we mentioned. And, and we talked to Walt about pinups or splash pages and using uh, kind of unusual layouts and different things like that. Uh, it's a, today's conversation. It's a lot of stuff about uh, uh, the artist as a uh, working professional. And I think always those conversations are always really interesting. I'm a big fan of Walt Simonson and Maya. you know, like, uh, when I was reading comics in the uh, late seventies and eighties, uh, as a new reader, uh, he and his wife, Louise Simonson, they were, they were the, the married couple of Marvel comics to me, like, and of comics in general. And I, I just thought that that was so cool. And the fact that they have been married since 1980, I think is, I'm a hopeless romantic. So I think that that's very lovely and that they have done some great stuff together today most famously X-Factor, which uh, is a, uh, a Marvel brand that's probably got a bigger future for it because of all that stuff on screen that we're probably going to see coming in the years to come. But we should get to it. And uh, so this is going to be Walter Simonson, one of the, the top comic book artists uh, of this or any other era. And uh, we're told to have him here on Mindspace. Welcome to Mindspace. This week, uh, i very excited. Uh, Maya and I welcome uh, Walter Simonson. How are you, sir? Very uh, very excited to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I've enjoyed your work for uh, so many years now. Um, I have a very specific memory of of uh, when they first started doing Marvel graphic novels. Uh, and you had one of the very first ones.
1: Uh, I did. number 6, I think. Yeah, was it 6? Oh, wow. I think so. It should have been 5, but uh I was so late that they, <clears throat> that they uh, uh, took what was gonna be two issues of the New Mutants, what so it was just starting, it was the first two issues, and they converted that to a graphic novel. So the New Mutants started as a graphic novel and came in a month before I uh, Slammers came out.
0: I see. Oh, I didn't know that, but that, that, that makes sense. That, it, it didn't feel like a graphic novel quite when that New Mutants story, reading it, it didn't feel like the, the other ones. Uh, right. So that, that's, that's interesting. Um, but that must have been a big moment for you, uh, especially uh, what that uh, project represented with the creator's rights and, and, and the, the, the format that Marvel gave it and the emphasis. It, it was a, must have been a really uh, shiny moment for
1: you. It was fun. I mean, it was, you know, some of the stuff you do, uh, you look back later and stuff seems more significant than it seemed at the time. At the time, hey, one more project, a check you can cash. So okay. you're not quite thinking about, oh, this is a milestone um yeah. one thing i did like uh, and i was actually um it made it a little more familiar to me in a way is that about a year or two earlier a little more than that maybe two or three years earlier uh heavy metal had put out a graphic novel adaptation of the alien movie that i had drawn archie Goodwin had written and they did it in a trade paperback format it was square bound i forget what you call that stuff now but um uh, by the time the graphic novels of Marvel were starting to come out, Mar- uh, that book had been out for a bit. Archie had gone to work for uh, Marvel, and so they used the Alien graphic novel as a template for the Marvel graphic novels. That was where the format really came from.
0: Oh no, kidding! Wow, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, I I did not know that. And I mean, Marvel had done had they they had done like that Silver Surfer graphic novel uh, in the you know. A, uh, in like the 70s like it's what well, it was like a, a a standalone you know uh silver surfer
1: i think i don't yeah i'm sure there was i mean they had they tried different formats you know there were tabloid yeah. comics for a while um when i i did the adaptation i drew it uh with archie on the close encounters of the third kind and that actually came out in two formats that came out in a magazine size format and it came out in a larger tabloid size so they were yeah. kind of casting around for different formats and trying to figure out what to do i think comic shops weren't wild about the tabloids size because they weren't sure where they could put them on the shelves apparently yeah um, that, that makes that sense was that... early days for comic book uh shops that was very early days for that so for sure. uh they were trying different things and 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 continue to try different things from time to time it's kind of cool
0: yeah you know in that era with those movie adaptations there was such an interesting you know subset of uh what marvel did uh you know doing uh I've ever obviously the Star Wars and, and Empire Strikes Back and uh, but also like Raiders of the Lost Ark and and uh, um, it it was interesting to see those in comic book form and, and see the actors portrayed uh, in comic book art. Did, did you consider that a, a different type of challenge? To did you feel like you had to match the likenesses?
1: Well, catching catching likenesses is always difficult. At least for me, it's not impossible. But I mean, there are guys like John Bogdanov who just. Bat out likenesses like there's no tomorrow it's really irritating but (laughs) hey john if you're listening i'm just telling you but um it also varies something that uh, most of readers don't know is that uh going back as far as close encounters which is what 78 79 something like that um the companies marvel or dc or anybody else had to purchase the likeness rights as well as the license for doing the adaptation of the movie. And in the case of, for example, Close Encounters, Marvel did not have likeness rights, mm-hmm. which is why nobody looks exactly like themselves. Um, I tried to do physical types that were similar. Uh, to me, Richard Dreyfus was a little on the blocky side, not a big guy, but a little blocky. And so yeah. I tried to do that uh, somewhat in the character I drew. Um, I think he wore you, you wear flannel uh, flannel plaid shirts? I can't remember. I gave him a plaid shirt. Um, so some of that stuff I, I tried to keep similar, but without being so close that they would start getting after me. Um, years later, I did a, uh, a project with Frank Miller. Frank wrote it. I drew it Robocop versus the Terminator. Oh, and yeah. Dark Horse published it. They did not have the likeness rights for Peter Weller. So I... I, I hope they don't sue me now I, I kind of drew Peter Weller as I said I'm not a real strong likeness guy so I didn't try to make it look exactly like Weller but I tried to get something similar enough that it would be you know uh, readers wouldn't be too far off of it the funny thing was there was one drawing at the end of that book the fourth issue where uh, uh, the character is back to being human again for a, kind of a hallucination I think and he's screaming and, and screaming faces are, they're difficult to draw and they're difficult to draw with a likeness. Unless, you, unless you've got good reference, it's tough to do a real screaming face and still make it look like the guy. And uh, so that's probably the face in that book that least looks like Peter Well or any face I did. And that's the face they came back and wanted changes on. I went, really, this face? I thought, I don't think Peter Well looks like this, but I, you know, that was okay.
0: Well, you so, know it's funny because uh, I've interviewed him a couple times, and he's a screamer. Like he starts screaming during the interview. So maybe that's why. Maybe that it, it just. Uh, it,
1: it, oh, uh, oh well. I, yeah, I've never met Peter. Well, I don't know anything about him in real life. I hope he's not pissed that I sort of, you know, fudged my likenesses. But uh, he'll find that's you if that's he's. Very funny.
0: He'll, he'll come find you if he is. Don't worry. I'm I, sure. He's a real character uh, and a, a, a very much a Renaissance man. You know, he teaches uh, uh, like Renaissance and a uh, Renaissance art class at usc uh
1: wow good for him
0: i you know i might be mangling the uh the the uh the exact name or uh, discipline but i know it's in the arts and i know it's in the antiquities right. um That's but cool. he uh, i interviewed him in la on stage once um in front of like just a couple hundred people and he started uh literally screaming during the interview talking about he got very uh animated uh and 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 <laughs> and, and, and Uh, melodramatic theatrical on purpose uh right um criticizing denzel washington and other actors who drive but never look where they're driving in movies in it it, that's his big oh oh, how funny and he went went off it's on youtube if you ever if you ever have four minutes of your life and just want to know what what weller looks like when he's screaming to hold it up against your art that would be the uh, well there you go i'm
1: gonna go take a look that's very funny we ran into a problem once when I was doing. I did uh, drew Battlestar Galactica, back yeah. in about '79 when it came out, and uh, we there again. Marvel did not have likeness rights, and I went and drew the guys anyway. I drew the characters anyway, more or less again without being too close, but just in the style I used. And uh, the Glenn Larson Productions or whoever it was putting that thing out, whoever we had to let go through, uh, came back. My wife. No, 79 my girlfriend at the time uh, or I did that while we were getting married so she may have been my, gr- my wife by that time but Louise uh, got word from uh, the license or that uh, Apollo looked too much like himself which was Richard Hatch yeah. and uh looked a little like Richard Hatch but, uh, okay and there was some panel they were concerned about so it
0: like Bruce Jenner I remember it,
1: it so it, basically it, we uh, <laughs> kind of sat around for a bit and then we got back and said okay how's this now we hadn't changed anything and they said, all right that's fine <laughs> and then somewhere in there we discovered that uh they hadn't actually met apollo meant apollo they had met adama they'd met lauren green oh wow when we never touched because we didn't think that was the guy they were talking about so they you know i, I did think as a writer at the time I did write a few of those issues my very first writing in comics but I was only a fledgling writer but I did think anyway that having two main characters whose names began with A was maybe not the smartest choice to make of with characters in a a limited cast I thought well maybe maybe could have been Apollo and you know William or something something completely different but sure uh, I thought even they can't keep it straight I'm not really too worried about it so um that was funny that was a I mean, it was a fun book that licensing back then for the comic book end of it was very free and easy um now it's way you know it's all likeness rights it's guys really leaning on you to make sure the drawings are what they think they look like and i you, i mean there's not much fun in it for me i it's it's mostly back then it was fun um there wasn't a lot of oversight um alien was maybe the best adaptation I did with archie and that one, we had three different script versions to work from. Nobody cared what we did. We basically tried to put all three together in a way that would make the best story in a 64 page comic or whatever the book was. So, um, but we found that that as time went by, they, they began leaning on you more and more. When Archie began, did the, well, no, Roy did the first Star Wars. Archie wrote the second Star Wars, Roy Thomas. Wrote second, and he wrote the third one. And by the third one, there were scenes he was told to omit because they would reveal too much of what was going on. And some of them of course, were crucial scenes. So if anybody could write around that stuff, it was Archie. But before that, you know, up until somewhere in that neck of the woods, you really had a pretty free hand at, at uh, uh, I mean, they would come back and they would, I, I wrote the adaptation for uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And they came back a couple of times with, they wanted some line changed, um, I don't remember all the, I don't remember them now. And there was one bit that was, real, I forgot, I haven't seen the movie in a long time now. There was a, a bit in the beginning where Indy is after he, the very opening where he's getting that little golden idol out of the cave and he switches it with the rock, bag of rocks or whatever it was. Yeah. And it runs out and the big boulder comes after him. And and one of the natives, I think, had had you know had grabbed it and run off with it. Uh, one of you had a swing across a, a chasm or something. And uh, in the end, well, in the original script, I think Indy may have, I don't know if he would kill the guy. I think in the movie, it's not like they find all these arrows in him, I think from other natives, or something like that. But uh, the in, this, in the original version of the comic, uh, Indy may have killed him in some way. Uh, the guy that, you mean
0: the guy that betrays him on the way in that gets killed by the trap with all the... The guy who
1: betrayed him. I don't remember exactly now, but, but what happens is the in the comic, they came back and said, no, can't do this. I guess i might to be killing somebody deliberately, which I, I get. But that's whatever it was, was what was in the script originally. John DeSemma drew it. And so we, we, it was very late. Had to go out to the printer. So there was some fudging done in the production. And the, the fudging was that Indy, he had, he had thrown his whip and spun it and wrapped around the guy. And the guy had a gun. I'm remembering it. Anyway, the, somehow the gun pops out and shoots him. So it doesn't um, really, Indy didn't really do it. And what there is, is a little, I think there's a little drawing of a gun, a little silhouette that was stuck in one panel. And there was one panel where the guy's running off. Maybe he didn't get killed. And he's and so there's a little silhouette. So it looks like a cartoon silhouette of somebody kind of running along, you know, <laughs> doing, uh, doing the hokey pokey, getting off. But it's a little tiny drawing of the guy. So you could write, oh, look, he got away or, or he got shot, whatever happened to him. I don't remember, but they had to fudge that a little bit because they they changed what had been in the script originally to a different idea, and we had to accommodate that. Yeah, that, that was true. Really... That, that stuff was just fun. It was just, that was not a big deal. Uh, later, it became more, I mean, you're really working on the likeness rights and, and likenesses. My feeling is, as an artist, a lot of my energy then has to go into trying to get these faces right and getting approvals. Sure. And the energy I, I put into that stuff is energy that's not going into telling a good story and trying to do the best comic book I can do and really yeah. my job is to do a good comic book it's not to make you know some you know joe schmoe look exactly like joe Schmo, so joe Schmo will be happy i don't really care so yeah. so that's why i'm not doing movie adaptations anymore <laughs> <laughs> um you know i remember the uh talking about uh
0: either uh where the adaptations diverge or or uh when things have to be kind of fudged um I have a very distinct memory of the Empire Strikes Back adaptation and the purple Yoda. That there was a a skinny, uh, oh, wow. thin, uh, a button, purple man. purple skinned Yoda, uh, and I guess uh, it was before they had um, either completed or made available uh, the finished, you know, Yoda likeness because uh, he looked much more like uh, something that he looked kind of Middle ish He looked right. like he,
1: he could have right. been hanging out with Gollum. It's also possible, I mean, yeah, they might not have gotten the finished color on it, but I know in, in, for Indiana Jones, for the Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, the Lucasfilm folks or whoever was doing that, I guess that was through Spielberg. I don't know how that, I don't remember their company. That's right. They, they sent um, black and white photos. So they were like eight by 10 glossies or whatever they were. Um, they were not color. Uh, so whoever was doing it at the time probably had no color reference to begin with. Um, what was also true in those photos I think it's the only time I ever saw it you'd have a photo and it'd be a shot of India with his face you know, he'd be running in the village village or through the jungle, whatever and somebody had gone through and taken a very narrow little router that was about a 16th of an inch, a little less than that maybe and they had run a vertical line right over the photograph to destroy the emulsion and a horizontal line the same way, right through his face Uh so the cross, the lines crossed in the middle of the important of the face presumably so you couldn't sell it to Time magazine and walk away the fortune and reveal stuff in the movie. But I mean, for the kind of stuff we were doing, um, it didn't really matter. John Buscema drew that. John could draw anything, uh, including likenesses. So it didn't slow him down, but it was kind of funny at the time. And they Hmm. were, but they were black and white. That's not always true. And maybe these days, maybe you'd never get black and white. I don't know. But back then it probably didn't have any color reference on Yoda or they may not have decided what to do with them at the film company and they hadn't so the decision didn't come through by the time the book had to be in, in print in on press
0: yeah it's it's fascinating uh uh just because the uh, the timing of the adaptations back then and, and all the pent up interest in those movies uh you know so i remember like going over them intensely looking for clues about the you know the films uh, that were coming or uh but that, uh such an interesting chapter in time and then for you uh you know, obviously, the Thor years uh, just must have been uh, a wonderful time for you and uh, just as a storyteller, uh, not just in your art's very, very graceful, uh, but your storytelling really uh, just went up uh, so many notches uh, on people's radar. Um, when you look back on that, uh, how do you kind of uh, look back on that success at this time?
1: Uh, I was really, I'm delighted. I mean, again, you know, I was doing it while Chris was and, and John Byrne and uh, Paul Smith doing the X-Men. Frank right. was doing, getting wrapped up, wrapping up Daredevil somewhere. Uh, Dave Michelinie and Bob Layton were doing Iron Man. So some really good comics coming out of Marvel at the time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so you were kind of just part of that pack in a way. Um, you know, one of my early friends in comics was Bernie Wrightson. So anything Bernie did was just light years ahead of all the rest of us. So it was just like, uh, you know, you're just doing comics. Um, I was thrilled to do Thor. I was an old Norse myth fan from long when I was a child. So it was great to discover a comic. I was in college when I found Thor and uh, was delighted uh, to discover there was a comic about the Norse myths, more or less. <laughs> and um, I wrote some of my own stuff. I wrote some fan stuff, not ever published, but that became the basis for my Surter story 14 years after I'd put it together when I got the book. Um, I have a lot of credit, I have to give a lot of credit to the late Mark Grunwald. Mark was my editor. He was the guy who originally offered me the gig on Thor. Um, The story I got at the time, I've never really confirmed it, so I don't know if this is true. I've heard that the book wasn't selling very well. I mean, generally freelancers were not privy to the sales figures from the companies, uh, except in the the postal regulations where once a year they put stuff in there. I was told a lot of that stuff was fiction. I don't know if that's true or not either. but basically, uh, in theory, the book wasn't doing well. And uh, Mark Grunwald when he offered me the book as writer, and I had not, I'd written the three issues of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I had written four issues, which is adaptation. I'd written four issues about Star Galactica, and I'd written a graphic novel about the Slayers. It was roughly three issues long. So what is that, eight, uh, three, and four, seven, eight, nine. Nine, about 10 issues of comics by the time I started doing Thor. So I really was a, a kind of a brand new writer. Um, Mark, I think because the book wasn't doing well, uh, when he gave me the book, he offered it to me with carte blanche. He said, you can do whatever you want. He gave me a list of things. He typed up a list, which I cannot find. I have yeah. a million years. I would give a nickel to have it again so yeah. I could see what he suggested. But they, none of them were things he wanted done. They were okay. just things to suggest to me or to show me that anything was possible. I could probably, have, I could have killed Thor off and given somebody else the hammer. Well, I didn't give somebody else the hammer. I didn't kill Thor. But <sighs> stuff like that, which in 1983 really hadn't been done. We what you were doing. You know, a lot of sense, but not so much then. And uh, to I make think of a frog.
0: I mean, that's, that's very, di- frog, that's, you know. that's more than killing him, really. I mean, that's, that's actually more outlandish. Uh, everybody gets I, killed in comics nobody gets turned into a frog I'm,
1: I'm amazed and i i there's no other way to say this i'm amazed that frog has legs I didn't, <laughs> I, 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 there's just no other way to put it but i i'm stunned i mean the frog character throg isn't the same as mine i mean i he was based on it it's a different character really um from out of my stories but just the idea that the thor frog even exists anymore and that there are stories there are sculptures of it There are manquettes or whatever those things are called. Little busts. uh, And I guess there's a Lego out now, maybe? A little Lego figure? I have to go look for one of those. Um, But I just, I'm I'm stunned. You know, you do it, especially back in those days, there weren't a lot of reprints. That was just starting to come, uh, but not a lot yet. And very few collections. So mostly you did the comics. You never expected to see them again in print. You thought they'd come out, they'd be on the spinner rack for a month, or in the comic shop, and they'd be in, you know, your mom's basement where you sold your back issues from, stuff like that, but you didn't really expect to see them again, and to be here all these years later, like almost not quite 40 years later, and that stuff's still floating around, it's still in print, uh, much of it, it's, or off and on, um, there are other things that have spun out of it, it's kind of amazing, I mean, again, at the time you're doing it, uh, especially when I was writing pencil and inking, I was always a little on the late side of that stuff. They kept kind of moving my schedule for me. Thank you, Howard, <laughs> if you're out there. Uh, Mike Carlin, Mark Grunewald, Ralph Macchio to kind of make sure the book came out uh, consecutively without too much of a break. And when you're doing all that stuff, that's a lot of work in a given month. So I wasn't, I wasn't thinking a lot about, you, know, you don't do that stuff thinking about legacy. Maybe people do now, I don't know. I never, it's never been one of my considerations. And especially back then, most of you were trying to make a living out of it. So you don't consider, there was no legacy back then in a sense. There'd be a few comic fans who would know the old stuff, but it wasn't like you could walk into a comic shop or a Barnes and Noble and find trade paperbacks of this work. So that was never a consideration at the time. Um, In fact, in the early 70s, when I was gotten in business, my pals, Howard Chaikin and Ellen Milgram, and uh, Jim Starlin and a whole bunch of us would hang around. Um, many of us, Howard and I especially, thought that comics, I'm sure others as well, were really a dying business. Um, yeah. they were le- there were fewer sales every month. You could kind of see it trending down. And we all got into comics because we loved it. We wanted to do them. And we wanted to do them while they still existed. Yeah. And we thought, okay, 10 years from now, we're going to have to find real jobs. Yeah. But for right now, we're doing comics. It's
0: like
1: and, being a Dixieland musician. Like, and it let's do this out, we can. <laughs> yep. It turned out, I mean, with the birth of the direct market, comic sales jacked up. They did not die. We may need, now we're in another, maybe another period of transition now between floppies, the monthly books and collections and you are doing larger slabs of comics. Um, I don't know. That's kind of beyond my ken. But mostly it was a, um, a business that we loved and wanted to be part of while we could so again you weren't thinking very much about legacy you were mostly thinking man i just love doing this stuff and i'll just do it until i have to go find a real job someplace
0: yeah yeah and um and what an exciting time as you said i mean the, the peers that you mentioned you know you just cited off some people and i know that you shared uh studio spaces at different times with with people like frank and
1: uh frank and howard jim sherman now um val merrick yeah. Uh, with the guys in my studio re-rotating through. We usually had four, three to four guys in the studio at one time. Yeah. And uh, it was, it was, well, we usually talk about that. My wife and I talk about that once in a while is that the 70s and the 80s, in a way, up to maybe about 1990, were a great time to be doing comics yeah. because there was so much freedom in the work. Like I said, with Thor, I really had carte blanche. Um, when I suggested the Thor, a fro- you know, turning Thor into a frog, nobody blanched. Nobody yeah. went, oh no, don't do it. They just, you know, it was uh, okay. Simons is off on one of his loony, you know, storylines. Um, I think the only story I, I really kind of vetted in advance uh, was Jim Shooter, who was the editor in chief at Marvel. And I think during my almost my entire time on Thor, maybe my entire time on Thor, right? <laughs> at the end, I'm not sure. Yeah. But yeah. Um, uh, I wanted to do an issue that was all splash pages. It was right at the end of my run, like my 380. I finished up at 382. And I wanted to do an all splash page issue. John Burns had an all splash page issue of the Hulk, which had not come out in the Hulk magazine. Eventually it was put out in Marvel fanfare. I do not remember if it had come out by the time I did the Mjolnir song issue or not. I kind of think not, I had not seen it, but we all heard about it. So I knew that, you know, I I don't claim any credit for originating the idea. And there's also, there's an old Partridge family comic that's mostly pinups. Uh, what? <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> you know, a big shot of David Cassidy and a big shot of whoever the other actors and actresses were. Uh, I don't think every page is a splash, but a lot of them are. They're really just done as pinups for kids. So the idea was kind of floating around. I had the idea um, when I was doing Thor because I was working up to having Thor fight the Midgard serpent. In the Norse <laughs> myths, the Midgard serpent, Jormungandr, encircles the world. He lies under the ocean and he encircles the world. He's that big. And so when Thor fights him in the end, they fight at Ragnarok. It's the final battle for both of them. Uh, Both of them die uh, as a result of that battle. And I wanted to do a version of that story without entirely killing Thor, since I wanted to be able to pay my mortgage the following month. Um, But I worked out a way to do it. Um, I had a lot of trouble for a while thinking about it, trying to decide how to draw it. Part of the problem is that, and I do this to myself all the time as a writer. It's very annoying. Thor is, you know, compared to a serpent who's this encircles the world, Thor is pretty small. Yeah. So there was a big problem of scale trying to get Thor and a world serpent. In the end, I made Jormungand's head really large, but not so large that I couldn't kind of work it out in panels with Thor, and the body trails off over the horizon and disappears, presumably into the ocean for a long way. I, I debated about doing it, and I also wanted to make it kind of an epic feeling story. And I felt that if I did a lot of, I mean, I was thinking about it, you know, small panels, well, Jormungand's head will be big, but then Thor will be the size of like, you know, my 16th of an inch. And yeah. if I have close-ups on Thor, you'll see like a, you know, part of a tooth from Jormungand. And there'd be ways to fudge it, but for a whole comic, it'd be kind of tiresome. And sure. I thought, well, I could do a couple of pages and then I'll have some subplot running and we'll cut to the subplot for a, pa- for a, a page, then back to the fight, because the subplot introduces an element of time that makes the fight seem longer, so that'd be one way of making the fight seem like it took up more time by having these other elements interrupting it as you're going along. So you have to come back to it, and you can figure they've been fighting for the time you were away from them. That was another possible solution, and I, I just couldn't, I couldn't really get a hold of it. I was thinking about this months before that I did the issue. Eventually, we used, to, we used to live on the west side of Manhattan, and it uh, was a little restaurant called the Cantina that we loved, the Mexican restaurant on 71st and columbus on the i forget now i think on the northeast corner and we used to go there you know, once or twice a week easily and we were there one night it was a summer night because it was warm outside and it was still daylight and we finished up eating about seven o'clock i remember this i mean most of my life i cannot remember like this i trust <laughs> um there will not be an autobiography of my life because i have no idea what i've done
0: it'll yeah, be all splash pages actually. it'll
1: be all splash pages absolutely so <laughs> maybe i'll make you my writer you can be my ghost so uh we were stepping literally walking out of the restaurant and i walked across the threshold as i walked across the threshold out into the summer night about seven o'clock i suddenly went all splash pages nice it could be all splash pages that's one of the only times it did feel like a light bulb went off over my head. I just, I, wow. mostly the ideas you, you have to pound them out. You, you hammer them and you work at them and you temper them and you eventually get them. In that case, it was just like bang, the whole idea came to me. And I thought, uh, now you're still gonna go through 22 pages in a big hurry if it's nothing but 22 panels. But I thought that what I could do was I would, I, it'd be some captions to follow along in the story as well as dialogue. And the captions I decided, to write in kind of a faux Norse poetry. Um, the advantage, well, for me, poetry, I can't read poetry like prose. I have to almost read it out loud. I have to read it slowly. Uh, right. Prose I can kind of bomb right through. So, but you miss so much in poetry, if, even if it's not long, you miss so much trying to read it that way. So, and, and also the good thing about that was that Norse poetry, um, at least the stuff I knew from the Elder Edda and other places, it wasn't rhymed. So you weren't going to end up with like a limerick. There was an old man from Nantucket who's but you know it wasn't going to sound like that. I know that one. I it know that way. one. Well, many people know that one. Um, <laughs> but I I thought it it's stressed syllables. That's the opening It's the first syllable in seven words that are stressed that you kind of put through the lines in a particular way. And even if I wrote really bad poetry, which I I think I did, um, <laughs> you you would have to slow down to read it. And that would slow your, adva- if you actually read it, I mean, a lot of people I'm sure went flip, 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 and that was it. But if you're going to read it, you have to read it, dialogue, flip it, read it, dialogue, flip it. And, and so that would slow people down. And uh, going back to Jim Shooter, I was concerned about doing all splash pages. I didn't know if he would be in favor of that. And so one day, and this is back in the day, you could stop in anybody's office. I mean, now you have to have an appointment to get into an office, uh, you know, into the DC office, of Marvel office, whatever it is, and you have, you know, post 9-11, and you kind of make your appointment the editor, back then, you just showed up. Yeah, And if they knew who you were, which, you know, all the freelancers knew the folks there, you just were waved on in, and then you could walk around the office and bother people, you know, keep editors from doing their work. Nice. And so you could pop into offices, see friends, other freelancers would be there, editors that you knew. It was really very much a social set as well as a an editorial office, which at the time, again, great time to be doing comics. So I stopped by Jim's office. His door was open. He was not If he'd been busy, I wouldn't have done it. But his door was open. He was in there by himself. So I popped in, and I explained to Jim what I wanted. I had an idea I thought was great. But it was going to be doing this issue of Thor with Jormungand in all splash pages. And Jim was fine with it. Now, whether he would have been fine if he'd been surprised by it when it got into print, I don't know. I'm sure he would have been. But in any case, talking to him in advance gave me kind of the imprimatur to go ahead and do it and not be worried about it. Mm. And that was, which was, uh, that was good. That was a good way to create it. So and Ralph Bakke was my editor by that time. And Ralph was, Ralph was pretty much father whatever I was doing. So it was good to, but I thought it was good to kind of clear that one because it was a little unusual for the sure. time. And- yeah.
0: uh, I remember the issue. Worked out and, well. Yeah, it worked out terrific. And, and there's a real uh, operatic,
1: well, it's pretty big. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> it's pretty big. Yeah. It has that big, big opera quality. So um, so that was fun. And I also, Jim, very kindly let me do something that they didn't like people doing, which is I did that in 24 pages instead of 22. And that meant now I did a few in my very first issue, I think, was 23. I did an extra page there. We may have we may have dropped the letter column, which they let you do once in a while. And mm-hmm. then. Um, But I think for the 24 pages, we might have had to drop the bullpen bulletin as well, and that they didn't like that because that's, of course, a lot of promotion for other comics that month. So they weren't crazy about that. But Jim, let me do it for that issue, Uh, which again I'm very grateful because it just gave me a little more elbow room to uh, to do my story, and I in a in a place where I thought it made a difference. The few extra pages just gave me a little more uh, space in which to tell that story when, when it was really just like, you know, one big panel after another, you know, it, um,
0: the, the way that, uh, you were talking about scale and approaching that and, and, uh, and, and going through that process, it, it, it made me think a little bit about some of the things that uh, Kirby did, um, with like 2001 adaptation or, or, uh, some of the FF stuff, Fantastic Four stuff he did that had, uh, he would, uh, uh, have interstitial uh, like photographs uh you know uh, outer space and different things well, that though,
1: there. did collages and stuff he did some yeah. phenomenal stuff that were you know the only thing that was bad about those was the reproduction was so crappy back in the yeah like so awful and I just thought man I wish this were on good paper and you know they would half tone them and the half tones would print kind of eh, not great on that new old new crappy newsprint. But yeah. it was still it was really exciting. It was really uh ego the living planet he's sitting there with all this photographic mm. crap around him and stuff and it. it was really neat i really you know jack experimented a lot really uh for a guy who was putting out eight million comics a minute yeah at the time to just think about this stuff at some level that most the rest of us maybe all of us just never achieved it was just yeah was just,
0: i was always fascinated by the fact of um, he was such a, uh, a patriotic and such a kind of uh uh tradition of his generation, and then had this fantastical side. Like, it it was almost like he, like Archie Bunker and Zappa put together. Like, it was was the strangest, the strangest thing.
1: Jack at all, well, I met him several times, uh, mostly for like three seconds at a convention. I did meet him once, it might've been his last New York appearance, whatever convention that would have been, late seventies maybe, or thereabouts. And uh, we had a chance to talk for about five or 10 minutes after some panel, um, which was great. I do not remember at all what I talked about. I, I'm sure I didn't say much, I and mean, had Jack. Jack was talking about stuff, and I'm sure that's how it went. But he really, you know, he was such a. He came home from the war. Sounds like he married a sweetheart. You know, got a job. But what he, I have a uh, a sister-in-law whose father was a World War II vet. Uh, he served in the 10th Mountain in Italy. Uh, never heard his war stories. That's okay. Okay, okay. they must have been rugged. Uh, he loved skiing loved skiing so he was the right guy in the right job at the time but he uh, he came home from the war and married his uh, sweetheart uh went to work for john deere out in the midwest it was a pattern, pattern maker maybe and you know did the american dream of that generation where he worked his whole life for the company retired i presume he had whatever kind of pension he had and uh you know it was the american dream of that the greatest generation and in For a way, sure. except the fact that Jacqueline often did these astounding comic books that were mind boggling, kind of yeah. the same story. He really, you know, he kind of lived an American dream, but in an area of creation that most Americans don't get into at all.
0: So, Absolutely.
1: Pretty astounding, really. Just like, of, a, it seemed like such a, well, both a down to earth guy and a complete spacehead yeah it's, right, it's it's right,
0: crazy. Right. It's like it's Frank Capra of HP Lovecraft like I, what? <laughs> how did you do that? <laughs> how, that how can you be that? I
1: don't know. We all aspire to that.
0: Yeah um And I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the things that you're doing now and I know you have uh, uh there, there's all these different ways of changing the space between the artist and the audience these days uh, in comics and storytelling in general that the way that people get things and the way that they consume them, the way that they interact, all that's up in the air and changing. Um, and some of it's very exciting. Some of it's kind of off-putting, but for you right now, tell us tell me a little bit about where you're at with your ongoing conversation with your work and your fans.
1: I'm a really boring old guy. I'm just, I'm a dull guy. I have younger <laughs> friends who are doing all this stuff on the web. They're doing all this stuff through uh, Kickstarter they're doing stuff through other, you know, independent companies. Um, I am actually at that uh, independent company through IEW right now, the comic I'm doing. Um, I haven't done, and, and some of my comics are available through Comicsology. although a lot of that would be the older work that, you know, Marvel or DC is putting up there. I don't have anything to do with that. I just, that stuff goes up and I get a royalty for like 25 cents, 14 cents, 35 cents. You know, it adds up after a while. Sure. Um, mostly, I am a traditionalist. I'm a guy that uh, um, I still work physically. Uh, I haven't learned to work with a computer. I mean, I, I do stuff like this, obviously. And sure. uh, the one thing I can do with a computer now, which makes my life easier in comics, is I can, I can correct typos. So I oh. can use Photoshop, which is like using a nuclear weapon to break nuts. I mean, it's just like really <laughs> photoshops, so you can change like an R to an F. You know, well, yes. So I used to have to do all this stuff by hand. But now I, can, I, I was able to imitate John Workman's lettering fairly well if I needed to. But it was still tough. You're sitting there you know, really trying to get that shape so when it gets reduced, you won't be able to tell. And um, now with Photoshop, I can, I've changed whole words and balloons and all sorts of stuff. I try not to. I try to get it right the first time. There are, there are a lot of writers now who, I think in the digital age, with, lettering is mostly on is, is digital now. I try to avoid that as much as possible. Uh, work I do for Marvel or DC. Sometimes it's digital. Sometimes it's uh, on the boards. Um, I prefer on the boards because I can accommodate the balloon shapes to my art or I can accommodate my art to the balloon shapes. Um, if it's digital, it still looks to me largely like stuff laid down on top of the panel which, because that's what it is uh, in a virtual fashion. Um, yeah. So I would rather... Adjust my get the balloons down and adjust my art to make that because the shape of the balloon is such a positive shape inside the panel, it's such a graphic shape that's part of the art, really. And so, I don't want that to be a kind of a random thing tossed down, it doesn't have sure. to be. I'm sure there are letter digital letterers who can take that into account. Um, I did a comic years ago for CrossGen, it was a fill in, uh, Ron. Ron, Ron, you know, friends? I get them confused, and I, I hate myself for it. There's Ron oh. Friends and Ron Mars, and one of them is an artist, and one of them is a writer.
0: Friends is the Silver
1: Surfer. Friends is the writer. Uh, I think he's the, yeah. No, he is or is either. See, this I is my problem, and I know both of them, and it's really terrible. But oh, I, think,
2: like, I think I think Mars is the writer. I think
1: you. Friends, friends is the. I was thinking Ron was, but I wasn't dead certain. So. Sorry, Ron, I know you're going to hear this. I'm gonna No,
0: no, gonna, you know what? We, we, yeah, you know, we, we can, it's a walnut, we can drop an A-bomb on, don't worry. But,
1: but Ron Mars, he was doing a book, oh, it was a samurai book that Bart Sears was drawing. Oh, I can't remember the name of it now. But they samurai. did a killing for issue five. And uh, it, part of the conceit of the book was kind of a fictional feudal world in Japan, a feudal world of the samurais and stuff in Japan. And there was a war going on. And the hero's best friend was a Viking. He had wandered over to Japan from Scandinavia, survived the trip, and was part of, the, part of the crew with the hero. So the story I did, Ron wrote a specific story so that it'd be an origin story for this guy. So he could have the war leading up to a certain spot, had this origin story, and then have the war with Bart doing the artwork again. And I drew it, and I thought about it, and I thought I like doing this kind of weird stuff. Um, there's not any Viking drawing anywhere that I know of, anyway. Uh, there's not a lot of stuff they, they they did. You know, the writing they left is really inscriptions. It's not really manuscripts. Uh, they mm-hmm. have, but it's you know, it's the Firth Ark and it's not. You don't have old manuscripts of Viking stuff, and you have holes in the ground where buildings used to be, and you kind of interpret how those like look like. So, what there is, uh, the Normans in France were Norsemen, they were descendants of the Vikings, not only a couple of generations removed, I think. And so uh, when William the Conqueror invaded England in 1066 and won and, and kill, beat and killed King Harold and took over, became the king in England, um, there was a big tapestry made called the Bayou Tapestry. It's a couple of hundred feet long, one end of it's destroyed, so it, it was longer than that originally. But it's like a big comic strip that tells the story of the meeting of these two sides, the confluence of history and the battles, the death of King Harold and and the victory of William the Conqueror. Now it is told from the victor's point of view, so it's all, all that. Usually is, usually is. uh, And there are Latin inscriptions, you know, a few words scattered through the tapestry to explain stuff here and there, not really word balloons, but nevertheless words and pictures combined. So when Wolf tells his story, the comic opens up with about maybe four or five pages of Wolf and his friend whose name I don't remember either, talking. And uh, then there's a close of the same sort of thing. But the middle is all Wolf's telling his story. So at the time, CrossGen was doing all double page spreads. Hmm. They were actually producing paper that was a double page spread where the paper, you didn't have to tape paper together to make a double page spread. You got a sheet that was a double page spread size for drawing. So I got a bunch of that stuff. So in the middle section Wolf's telling a story, I did it all as double page spreads and I borrowed the the Bayou Tapestry style. So I didn't do it, I did three rows on each page separated by little decorative borders taken again from the tapestry. So you could read across and then read across and then read across, flip it over and then have the same thing. And I drew it as close as I could to the Bayou Tapestry style. And the ships from the Bayou Tapestry are dragon boats. They're like dragon ships from the Vikings. So it's pretty close, close enough for rock and roll. And I will say, whoever lettered that, they, there's stuff captions in the, you know, Wolf's narration, and they I've forgotten the type they chose. They chose kind of a Viking, a runic-like type, and they dropped it in very carefully, hmm. really carefully around the art, so it looks like it's part of the art. I don't remember who lettered it. Thank you very much, whoever you are out there. I'm very grateful. But it worked <laughs> out. It worked out very nicely, and I, I was really happy. And in that particular strip. I did the opening, the first half of the biotapestry stuff with a pen, a little harder line. And then the second half of it, I all inked in brush, like Japanese brush lettering, and you, nobody can tell the difference. Even in good reproduction, you'll never know the difference. But I did do that to give it a little bit different feel. And uh, my favorite review was some guy who reviewed it on the web and said, wow, read this book. Walt Simonson's drawing has really gone to hell. <laughs> Funny. On the other hand, somebody apparently in production at CrossGen down in Florida, when the art came in and said, Oh my god, he's doing the bio tapestry. So oh my gosh. Wow. He totally got it. Good for that guy. That's but, funny. Now, what that, the things- that's what I enjoy. I enjoy that kind of thing, trying to find ways to tell a story that derive from the story itself. Yeah. And I don't go nuts every issue by any means, but I some issues lend themselves to a different stylistic approach.
0: Yeah, and the form uh, becomes you know part of the expression like in a really interesting way. I was gonna ask you if the, the panels were consistent and when you did those, the triple uh, mm-hmm. stacked with uh, panels consistent size all the way through?
1: I didn't do panels, I did okay. a continuous thread the same way the tapestry is done. it would be an image and then an image and then an image but no actual break between them.
0: Yeah. Um, I had a kind of a philosophical question for you real quick real quick if um oh i know i
1: was gonna say i will say one real quick thing out of the stylistic approach trying to figure out some way to do stuff um as you know there's going to be this book of john paul's winterman coming out and uh the guys doing it asked several people to do pinups for it john paul's Mm -hmm. friends and colleagues i did one of those um and uh i i will confess here on the air. I did not, I've never read The Winter Men. I've looked at <laughs> the art, I've loved it. I want to read it someday, but I, I think I missed some of the issues when they came out and never got around to buying the collection. The collection is still available. It's, I mean, it's not available. It's just, it's on, it's used and on the web. I found a copy that wasn't a million dollars. It's on order. So it, it hasn't shown up yet. So I, but I, I know John Paul's work and Tommy Lee Edwards who's one of the guys spearheading this sent me a PDF of John Paul's work in the book. There were about three or four complete pages, a couple of covers, a bunch of character designs, which is just a thrill to see because you never see that stuff. Yeah. And uh, one of the character designs, there were three actually, of someone called, somebody called a rocket man. So the rocket men uh, who are, I gather armored Russian troops from this world that the Winter Winterman occurs in. And I thought they looked really cool. I took the, the version I really liked and I drew a pinup of that guy and then some smaller Guys on either side, and then a shot behind them of St. Basil's in Red Square. to indicated this is like Russian stuff. So I, I hope I never have to draw that sh- that building again. It was it's gorgeous, but it was <laughs> really pain in the neck to draw. So uh, when I when I inked, got ready to ink it, I talked to Tim there. I emailed him really, and I asked what John Paul had used because John Paul. I mean, I had him. I taught him in class many years ago. He was in my class at School of Visual Arts. Uh, I had nothing to do with his talent. I, didn't, I did nothing other than not trammel him, I think is what I did. But um, I think he used regular, well, he was doing mostly pencils for me at the time, but he used pens and Tommy Lee, it turns out he'd use like things like Pigma markers and stuff like that, and a lot of other stuff. They're kind of like, you know, thin point magic markers. I, they're archival, which is important in the old days, pen tells and stuff were really cool to work with, but they were not permanent. And so you get old Alex Toth drawings, the line will turn to red. In the, or brown, and it'll almost be faded out completely in some cases, oh, wow. so they weren't really designed to, be, to last forever the way, I mean, India ink will last way longer than I'm going to. So the Pigma yeah. markers in theory should. So I inked that drawing with Pigma markers, which I haven't, I haven't never done that before. Well, I thought it'd be appropriate. And I did used to use rapidographs or technical pens a million years ago, um, right. and this is not unlike that. The, the pens themselves, the Pigma markers have one size, well, they, they come in different size points, but the points are not flexible. A little felt tippy, you can do something with it, but not much. They aren't like using a quote-unquote pen or a brush where you can really vary the line width. You, you draw a line, it's that same thickness all the way through. So you use different pens to achieve different line weights and you kind of view the work a little differently uh, in the way you're trying to get to your graphic look in the drawing. And I'm doing a New mutant story right now for Marvel and drawing it that my wife wrote. Um, for uh, X-Men Legends, uh, number 11, I think. And I've, it's almost, not quite, a, I've still got uh, a ways to, I've got about a little over, well, less than a half to go, actually, about, two, about a third to go, the pencil. And I'm going to start inking it. And I had so much fun inking John Paul's drawing with the drawing for John Paul that I've decided, pretty close to decided, I'm going to try a couple of panels first. If they don't work out, I can go back to what I'm used to doing. I think I'm gonna ink this job with Pigma markers. Now, a lot of young guys, we talked earlier about what you know people do these days. A lot of younger artists who are not working digitally do use Pigma markers and other kinds of markers to ink their work. I don't see a lot of that. One of the advantages in the old days was that when you went into the office, you could just walk in talk to people. You ran into a lot of freelancers who brought their work in. So you could see the original work they were doing. <clears throat> now, most of them back then were still using pens and, pen and, and India ink and brushes. Not all of them, a few. Gil Kane used a lot of early early marker stuff. Alex, mm-hmm. so if I remember being at DC my first year in comics, I've said this story before. Alex did a really beautiful job on a book, a story that Archie Goodwin wrote for him particularly called Burma Skies, which is a, or Burma Sky, I forget which one, uh, which is a World War II uh, story of uh, fighter planes and bombers and stuff. And the art came in and it was astounding. It was astounding. And I got to sit there and hold the art in my hands. And that's something, I mean, nobody, almost nobody can do that anymore. It's all goes in digitally. It's yeah. all sitting around people's houses. I mean, you can find the dealers and look at it there, but it's not the same. Back then, you were in the office once or twice a week. You had to take your own work in, in order for them to collect it and photograph it and proof it and all the rest of that stuff. So if you bumped into Gil Kane, you bumped into Howard Chaikin, you bumped into Jim Starlin, and you... Bumped into Alan Milgram bringing in inked work and you bumped into whoever um they'd have work with them you could look at the stuff they were doing that's how I know in the old days Jim Starlin don't know about now Jim used to groove his pages with a pencil incredibly deeply and I always thought man if there were only he really penciled hard and I thought if only there was some way to pour India ink across this page and then wipe it off it would yeah. all be there it would all the lines would just fill in and it would just be it would be perfect, yeah. Yeah, of course. But but you learned that stuff, to seeing what other people were doing, you saw their techniques. Now you get some on, you know, people that show demonstrations on YouTube. Um, you'll see friends at conventions, but it's it's in a way, it doesn't seem to me to be quite the intense education of looking at art in the 1970s, 1980s. The one thing that made that time for me, um, so priceless to be able yeah. to do that kind of stuff. In hand, um, so anyway, I'm going to try. I'll take a crack at inking this with pigma markers. If I do a couple of panels and they suck, well, I'll scatter them through the job so you won't, you know they won't show up too much when I go back to using my regular tools. Well, we'll see how that works. That's great. Uh,
0: you know, it's interesting. I, I, I um, I've been a journalist since I was 17, um, and in newsrooms, uh, and the way you were talking about Marvel reminds me of newsrooms, and the way that you're talking about um looking under the hood of other people's art uh oh, yeah. in person reminds me of the lessons i got you know uh in uh watching journals who were uh much more accomplished and and um uh and experienced right. than i was um are there, there
1: some me... in these rooms where people gather like that no is it more in, 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 virtual stuff now yeah everything's virtual and
0: and i think it it, it, it makes me concerned about sort of inst- institutional amnesia uh or or just a sort of a, a general lessening of craft, uh, right. just because because of the, the, the sort of uh, the protege aspect of things is really now, if, uh, if you don't go out of your way to create it, you don't get it.
1: Right, right. You know? Yeah, well, um, it's, yeah, comics is, I mean, well, comics, like any kind of uh, pop art, popular art type stuff, changes over time. So that the, the, you know, I remember seeing Will Eisner work when later, later in Will's career, really loved it, but always had that like 1940s vibe to it. Always had looked like the stuff when he was young. I'm yeah. sure my stuff looks like that now to younger people, younger artists. They say, wow, old Simonson, still going, but really looks dated, looks really <laughs> old. So, you know, and I, I can see some of what's been done. A lot of what's been done does not interest me particularly, at least yeah. as an artist. I mean, I'm glad those guys are doing it. I'm glad they're making a living at it. But mm, I'm not as interested in creating work that looks like that as I am at creating the stuff I try to respond to myself. So, yeah. so far, I've been lucky enough to get work. That's kind of the measure of how that goes. Um, you know, I may, run, I may run the course one of these days where suddenly it's like, eh, thanks a lot, Walter, for coming in, but we really can't use your stuff anymore. <laughs> and So far, I'm good. But, but it, is, it is definitely an old school kind of, uh, kind of approach to comics now.
0: There's um, you know uh, to me there was different types of uh, comic book art and one of the ways that in my head I, I looked at it, uh, the actual art itself, is that there's art that seemed to be really kinetic. like Jack Kirby's stuff seemed to just move across the, oh, the yeah. page and yep. he wasn't he wasn't going for photorealism and, and it doesn't oh, matter yeah. if hands aren't that shaped because that's he's doing the, the impact and the visceral, the movement of it all and and then like on the other end of the spectrum to me was like Wally Wood where everything just looked almost like this uh this beautiful stately like frozen in time mm-hmm. you know there was a real sort of yes. uh almost uh, um stillness to it
1: yes um, yes that, the characters yeah. in flight had kind yeah. of stopped you you're catching this moment in time but it's not a moving mo- you know it doesn't moving in quite the same It was like Botticelli
0: you know it was like yeah. A, a, yeah. a or you know uh, the Sistine Chapel or something and and Kirby on the other end felt like it was uh it was almost like a courtroom sketch like you know like he's capturing this this uh courtroom sketch in a in a, a in a, a punch-up you know
1: uh his work exploded off the page yeah it was, really it was just it was i mean that's the stuff that i really i mean i loved woody stuff but i could never do it right. jack stuff i couldn't do jack either but i understood more of what he was doing in a way where mm. i aspired more to that look so i i um well i've said this elsewhere too but i'll what the heck um one of the things that i like in art is i'm describe this In illustration coming out of Howard Pyle and the the Brandywine School, the work those guys did, N.C. Wyeth and uh, uh, Schoonover and uh, other uh, done, um, there is a quality in their paintings where you see the painting and you see the picture whether it's Bunker Hill or it's Robin Hood or it's King Arthur or whatever, uh, the trapper in the wilderness and you read the picture beautifully, you have no trouble with reading the picture, but you can also look at it maybe a little more closely and you see the surface of the paint of the drawing and you're aware of the way the paint was laid on in order to make the sunlight happen over here. Or sometimes it's because it's thick, sometimes it's thinner, but you need Schaefer, but you still see the shape of the paint. So you're aware, or to me anyway, of both the three-dimensional quality of the picture and also the two-dimensional quality of the canvas, because you're looking, you're really looking at a flat surface that's giving you the illusion of depth. And I like work that has both those things going on. Mm. Um, I think I, I was able to finally put that in the words or at least think about it. There was a million years ago, when we lived in New York City in 84, 85, 86, somewhere in there, there were a couple of giant Van Gogh shows. I'm sorry, Van Gogh, but Van Gogh. Uh, in in the big museums in New York, I've forgotten which ones now even, but probably the MoMA, something like that. Uh, one was this, uh, up to RL, one was one was later, one was a little bit earlier. They were just giant crew retrospectives. You'd walk in, you just walk, and they had them all arranged chronologically, so you'd walk through them and see all this spectacular stuff. And you began to realize that nobody ever captured Van Gogh's stuff in reproduction. You mm-hmm. just you see a Starry Night, it's like nothing that you've ever seen in a poster or a book, or just there's an electricity to it, a live quality that just doesn't exist in print. And they were spectacular. But one of the things that really blew me away, there was a hall somewhere, and there was, a, I think, a door in the center of it, like a room, really, and there were two large drawings. And I would have said they were maybe maybe a yard across and maybe two feet high, I don't remember for sure now. And they were of fields, and they were in pencil. They weren't paintings, they were pencil drawings. And the one I remember, high horizon, like a Bruegel horizon, and a lot of stubble in the field. The field's been cropped. I don't know if there were wheat haystacks in it or not. I can't remember. But the stubble, you know, it was like larger in the foreground and became little dots in the background. And what you got when you step back from it, you clearly the field and you had the depth and you, I mean, less so than maybe color because you're looking at black, you're aware of the black and white quality, but you're really aware of the mark of the pencil on the paper on the surface of the paper. And I was, i was it was really an epiphany for me seeing the surface of the paper and the drawing of the field simultaneously. And in a sense, that's what I want my work to be. I want it to have what I aspire to this is the kind of energy Jack Kirby put into it. I'd love to do the kind of, I mean, the guy who did the biggest space, a space inimical to man is Philip Drouillet. French artist. Yeah. And he just does these gigantic spaces with tiny people. And it just looks like the universe is so indifferent or maybe even malevolent toward man. It's just great. I've taken a lot from Drudier when I could. It's like a Kubrick.
0: It's like a Kubrick film, like where you 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 have the humanity like in a petri dish.
1: Yep. In the middle. (laughs) And they're just so I want that. And I also want I want my line to be both revealing of the depth in the drawing. And at the same time, revealing of the surface of the paper that I'm drawing on. Mm. I don't know that I always achieve that. Probably not. But that's what I'm looking for in the kind of line work that I do and the kind of way I I approach the line that I want on in the art, I want it to be graphic. Um, When I pencil something, and then I ink it, I do not always ink exactly what I've already penciled. Mm. Um, I mean, it'll be close but I see the pencil as kind of an armature for my being able to be fairly free with the pen. Now, I've seen artists who just be free with the pen with complete courage. That's not me. I have to have some pencil stuff down there so I can get my courage going. But, yeah. but that's really, you know, I might not draw the line exactly. That way. I might go a little further out or maybe it's thicker in that one spot. I don't draw my pencil lines like Starlin's pencil lines or other pencilers as well, Art Adams, I believe where the pencil line itself is what's going to be in the ink line. It's thin at one end. It's thick in the middle. It thins out. It's He actually renders it up so you can see, the inker can see exactly how he wants it converted into ink. My stuff, since so this isn't, isn't going to be a, a film, you won't be able to see it, but there's my pencil right there. It's a drafting pencil, a Pentel, I think it's a 209. And it's just an automatic lead. Just squirt at the end of it, stick the lead out. So I don't, it's the same size all the time. I don't worry about how big my lines are in my pencil drawings because i'm going to do that when i start inking it and i'll do it freeform and in many cases i've to one of my friends once alan milgram we were talking about inking and i think it was alan and he was indicating how i mean alan was classically trained in a way he went through under, as a, a, said in murphy anderson one of the classic dc inkers. and you oh, gotta yeah. if you had a the underside of an arm you would start a very thin line for example at the point of the elbow under the under the uh, tricep very thin line and you would draw the shape and then under the tricep and then back up to the armpit and you'd make the line very thin at the elbow point thick under the tricep and then thin again at the far end almost like a little bit of gravity is pulling your line down slightly and I rarely think of it that way I think of it mostly as almost as calligraphy like I'm doing drawing where I want the line to be alive but I don't care about the gravity I just want the line to create a drawing where the line itself Speaks and renders the shape at the same time. Yeah. I all makes sense, but that's that's kind of that's as much as I shoot for. I don't I don't I don't think about it a lot. Where at least not at this point. When I was first in comics, I thought about that stuff a great deal. I thought about page design a lot. I want my pages designed in a way that leads the eye through them. I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Um, I thought of pages as architecture where you've got stuff up at the top and then you put stuff at the bottom like a foundation whether it's several big panels or vertical panels that will hold the rest of the page visually stuff like that. Now I just draw a page. I don't worry so much about what, about that stuff, but I can go back and look at it. If I analyze one of my pages, I can see that I've done a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah. I just like riding a bicycle. I learned how to do it. And I don't, you don't worry about balancing anymore. You just draw it.
0: Sure. You've asked that question. So the answer is already present in the, in the work itself. Yeah. Uh, uh, you kind of accomplish oh, that. It. <laughs> it's interesting, the weights, uh, the, the droop and the, uh, it almost, it seems like it's almost a difference between drawing the thing um, is, is kind of your way and then the, doing the line and um, that's kind of drawing it in context of where it's at. Like it, that's in an environment. Yours is almost more kind of uh, like the, the uh, kind of Renaissance approach of just, you're, you're painting the thing.
1: Well, I want, I mean, I, you know, I want all the drawing to be of the same, I don't know, the same world, the same
0: yeah.
1: uh, kind of, mindset I mean, in a way. So, I mean, you do stuff, I did stuff, for example, this drawing of John Paul's that I did. Um, the, the the rocket men who are in the foreground are all the, the outlined fairly heavily. They've got a lot of black on them. Uh, I mean, I tried to emulate John Paul to a certain extent. He was just such a master of that kind of stuff. And then St. Basil's in the background, is all it's all line, no black, and it's all inked with a pretty thin pigment marker. So you have all these very bold shapes up in the foreground, and then this retreating into the background, almost like atmospheric perspective, where you have a thin line around all of St. Well, all of St. Basil, all those damn tiles, all those onion domes, all that stuff, and uh, so it sets back very nicely from all of these guys in the foreground. Uh, I'm kind of hoping to use some of that in the new Newton, so I don't screw it up we'll see how that it will be an experiment for me for it as i said i'll do a few panels my editor will be appalled to hear any of this stuff i'm sure don't play this till i get the job done but Um, uh, uh, your secret's
0: safe your secret's safe with us
1: you know i have some ideas about doing it which are a little different from what i normally do and we'll see how they work out
0: that's fantastic well i i um as i said when we started this conversation I, i i've enjoyed your work for as long as I've enjoyed comics, I've been enjoying your comics, and uh, you, and they're always executed with such grace. Uh, that that was the that would be the 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 way I think of your storytelling and your art. Uh, it just looks lovely on the page. You know, you mentioned calligraphy. Thank you very it, much. It uh, it definitely comes across. Thank you. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and maybe we can bother you again sometime. We'd love. I, I have about a million more things. Anytime you want to do it. All
2: right, thanks for tuning into Mindspace. You just heard Jeff Boucher in conversation with Walt Simonson, a guest that we were thrilled to have, an absolutely wholesome and compassionate and kind, welcoming human being, who as you could probably tell is extremely generous with tips and tricks, large and small.
0: And he's really good drawing as guardians. Mm -hmm. Uh, Enough about the content of his character. What about his his, his cartoons? No, I'm just joking. Yeah, Walter is a uh, the great Walt Simonson is uh, a treat to talk to. And uh, I wish people could see him talk like as he was talking because I think there's a, a, in his mean, in his aura, uh, it adds even more to things that he's saying, I think. Um, yeah, I loved he,
2: his perspectives on history, whether it was Battle of Hastings or comics history that he, he lived through. And in our outro, I was thinking about what he said about the conditions of being a creator at Marvel in the seventies and eighties were so perfect in his experience. They allowed for personal connection with higher ups. You could just walk into offices, he said, and, you know, you could make the case for your comics in person and that it allowed for lots of strong bonds and friendships where, like he said, you go out to eat to the same restaurants. So I was thinking that we could talk about the industry conditions and the industry setup and what the infrastructure of different creative time periods does for the arts that's produced and that we might not recognize until later on, but kind of the environment is a character almost in the development of how art comes to us and what enables people to have the careers that they have.
0: Yeah, no, that's well said. Uh, I I think that's a it is an interesting topic you look at you know we call them scenes uh i guess sometimes uh, but like in music you know it's the seattle scene or the, the the british invasion or uh tin pan alley uh the brill mm-hmm. building in new york with uh as the, the headquarters for songwriting for um a couple generations of uh really really talented lyricists and composers and uh w- w- how they affected each other you know like Neil Diamond was affected by the Brill building and uh, it, mm-hmm. it, it, his career would not have been the career it was if he had not encountered that. Um, where you look at the- You're album. talking
2: to the biggest Beautiful Noise fangirl in the world. <laughs> so the I know he, ha- he has an, an epigraph to Tin Pan Alley on, on Beautiful Noise. So
0: yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, it, it's sort of fascinating to think about. And um, I know I had it personally on uh, the different- way in a different profession, but just being in the LA Times newsroom for two decades um, and seeing the people that came through there, you know, I, I, I could have uh, hit five uh, Pulitzer Prize winners with a rock, uh, mm-hmm. except the security would have, you know, said stop throwing rocks, you know, uh, kid. Uh, and, you know, it, it well, that's affect- just
2: because you weren't in the environment of the Neolithic age, then you would have been a warlord. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, I'm much more of a Gutenberg uh, era kind of. Uh, okay, yeah,
2: yeah I yeah. need to
0: have the, the the equalizer of the printing press. You know, uh, I'm a I'm a writer, not not a fighter. But uh, yeah, it's it's interesting, and, and I think that I, I I kind of mourn the loss of newsrooms, uh, and I am not someone that kind of bemoans the advancement of time and the change of. I think innovation is the only thing that. Change is the only thing that stays consistent. Everything's going to change always. And, and in the change, there'll be great benefits and, and potential calamities, things that we don't anticipate both directions. But uh, I can still be wistful for a certain moment in time. And I, I do fret about the quality of, of journalism and, and its watchdog capacity uh, and things like that without the newsroom because of just uh, institutional amnesia. You know, I think it, uh, with newspapers going in the way of, you know, passenger rail, you know, hot air balloons, maybe uh, that uh, we see less local government coverage, you know, and less Mm -hmm. confrontational coverage. But uh, on a personal level, as a writer, it's really hard to be improve yourself as a writer, if you're not around editors and other writers, you know, it's, it's like being a uh, no athlete that plays a team sport practices entirely alone. Uh, And, Essentially now writers kind of have to practice alone, uh, unless they seek out and create their own community, which is what people are doing and and, and as they should. Uh, it's just different than what I'm have uh, experienced and I and I fear change and lash out against it.
2: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like what what about the physical environment? Can you give any specific examples of like what it felt like? Like what was the crackle in the air of you know oh, yeah. what no, what specific room. emotions did you feel that fueled your journalism and your career drive?
0: Well, for me, it was a lot of it was um, just the uh, the impulse to um, get approval. Uh, so I mean, basically as kind of a I like to procrastinate, I like to talk. Uh, so I' would walk around the newsroom and talk to people and I would get these great stories from them, and in those stories I was picking up cues about what you know this profession is and what it should be what it isn't uh you know consciously and subconsciously picking that up and uh you know i uh it, it toughened me up uh you know there's the times when it made me cry because it was so tough you know like people were harsh and uh you know uh i remember i, I covered a thing with a horse rescue and the horse didn't make it the horse died and uh but I had been with the family all day and they were they it was in this ravine and they were flying it out by helicopter and putting this harness on it and I was I had to go with them and hike for an hour rappel down into this ravine with these marines and on this precipice you know 500 feet above this gorge with this horse and harness and these marines risking their life to do this and uh, the helicopter comes and the cable gets electrified because of the rotors, and so now the reeds are like this is a life-threatening operation. And then they whisk the horse away. And there's a lot of emotion and people are, you know, tears and and uh, this is like eight nine hours into this this, this adventure. Um, and then and we're coming back down the mountain. We found out that the harness broke and that the horse had fallen uh, like ten thousand feet. Uh, and that all this is for naught. And so now, and then it's just a really hurtful, harsh, you know, you can imagine all the emotions. And uh, so I get back to the newsroom. And at the beginning of this uh, day, uh, when I started this horse rescue thing, I had a front page story with it. Uh, but it ended so sad that it got pushed inside. It was going to be my first front page story. It ended up on page like A26. And they put Ethiopian an Ethiopian famine photo on the front page I'm like oh well that's not sad you know but, but I understood the choice I understood the choice totally when I get back to my desk you're asking about the, the texture of the experience mm-hmm. there I get back to my desk and I'm covered in dirt uh, my feet hurt I've been I I from Florida I've never seen a mountain uh, I've been in California in two months but I've been repelling in sneakers today so I'm all I, I'm just hurting all over and uh, I sit down at my desk and I have like 20 minutes to write a story to sum up everything that's happened during the day. Uh, The horse was named uh, Scotch. That was the name of the horse. And uh, I got back to my desk and somebody had played a joke at me. They had printed out a headline, like in the Times font, and put it across my computer screen. So it looked like I had a front page story and it said Scotch on the rocks. And I started to cry. I actually started to almost like like you don't understand like you know like was, it was really I'm
2: so sorry I, I was That's so emotionally really
0: cruel I was so emotionally attached to everything that was going on and stuff um, and I got up and I took a walk and I came back and an editor came over it was a tough guy editor and he put his hand on my shoulder and he goes you all right I go yeah and he goes long day I go yeah and he goes just write it make sure people know what happened you got it and he walked away. And that was exactly what I needed because I was before I saw the headline, I was kind of too emotional, the other direction. Mm -hmm. And then it pulled me back and I actually needed that, that bucket of cold water in the face for a second, because it threw me off so much that I had to get up and walk away, but it took me out of the moment. And then, uh, you know, my editor was very reassuring and, you know, helped me get through it. But it's, uh, yeah, it's 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 like a it's a it, it was a room full of like fascinating people and, and very strange people sometimes and, and idiosyncratic people scary people uh, but all uh, pushing toward the same thing and that's exciting and that's what I think uh, you know Walt was talking about uh, is access to the gatekeepers and also just the mm-hmm. culture of it you know Marvel uh, the Marvel bullpen uh, never existed in reality the way it did in comics it was pre- it was uh, portrayed in the comics often not often but frequently uh can
2: you can you just sum up like a, a glossary definition of the marvel bullpen
0: oh yeah sure so uh in the, you know when stanley jack kirby uh and steve Ditko started the marvel revolution uh with fantastic four and spider-man uh, they uh you know, right before that, Stan Lee was the only employee of Marvel, uh, and the company got so small that uh, he was the one employee. Uh, and then they began to expand in the '60s once that all these new superheroes started showing up, uh, and uh, they were getting reader attention. And Stan uh, really was great at presenting the underdog image of Marvel and getting that underdog energy. So there, he was constantly telling readers in the books, uh, in the in the columns, and the letters, and the signed uh editorials and stuff about uh how they were trying to take on dc and how uh they were the house of ideas and mm-hmm. they had the greatest group of creators in history like jack <laughs> like Kirk. the house
2: of wisdom in baghdad and you know right. medieval caliphate
0: absolutely where science absolutely. was
2: born that's so cool
0: absolutely <laughs> and he oh and he he it was always uh yeah uh, uh hyping it uh, like a he was like a mix between like. Uh, you know uh, Barnum P.T. Barnum and Hugh Hefter, like creating a culture you know just the same way Hefter did through a publication Stan Lee did through Marvel Comics but uh, and he presented so all these. That's so
2: smart like your readers who are reading that and have this idea of your workplace then they're not just going to get emotionally parasocially attached to your characters they're going to get attached to you things with your name on it they're going to want to work for you
0: that's why That's... everybody calls Stan Lee the man. Stan the man. Everybody, <laughs> He's everybody's first favorite writer. He's the writer everybody's knew mm-hmm. first, you know, like before I knew Shakespeare, yeah. I knew Stan Lee. But uh, yeah, he was, he was very intuitive of, kind of had a huckster energy to it, and he mixed it with kind of a 60s kind of jive, uh, and it was mocked. Much. It was much mocked and parodied. Parody. Uh, uh, one of the parodies was uh, DC Comics presented a version of Stan called it "Funky Flashman." Yeah, uh,
2: yeah.
0: And just yeah, I mean, pure, purely uh, a lot of, uh, of bile in that uh, that portrayal. But uh, in creating this persona and all these different creators' nickname for every single artist, uh, you know, Stan was creating the image of this place. It's like uh, it was like Algonquin, or like maybe the Knights of the Round Table. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and it's where everybody came together. It, the, the reality of it was a little less glamorous It wasn't nearly as hectic. Uh, the people that were in the Marvel offices most often weren't necessarily the artists. You know, Jack Kirby worked in his home in the basement. Um, but uh, a lot of people went there and seeking this, you know, like go, it's like going to Graceland, you know, yeah. uh, I remember or I Mecca,
2: to... or yeah.
0: Yeah, like it's the Willy Wonka chocolate factory. You know, I want to get in there. What's it look like inside? It's, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people made the pilgrimage. You know, uh, Fellini famously stopped by. Uh, Curious people, Yuri Geller, who was a a mentalist who would Mm -hmm. use his mental powers to bend spoons. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, 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 yeah.
0: He was, he went by and he was in an issue of Daredevil. He teamed up with Daredevil as a result. Uh, That's a spoon I guess you know because as you do uh, kiss went by there the band kiss you know they did the famous deal with Marvel when Marvel published their comics the band members cut themselves so they could bleed into the ink so they could say that their blood was in every issue of the kiss comic book which was just brilliant uh, as far as like marketing like on brand
2: <laughs> okay all right
0: uh, yeah those guys are. They they can't play musical instruments, but they really know how to, to sell stuff. <laughs> it lot was like
2: in this whole Marvel bullpen, I'm guessing there wasn't a health inspector.
0: You know? Yeah. No. No. <laughs> at least, at least, of, at
2: least a nurse on site for ritual bloodletting.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, it's uh, I'll tell you though they talk about on brand. Those but yeah, know.
2: I'd want to work. Maybe if you know they didn't make me do that on my first day, but a kind of workplace that's open to that, I'd be like, hey,
0: oh, it's uh, it'll be interesting to see how things uh move forward, how people replace that sense of community and stuff. I mean, the, the mentorship mm-hmm. and the uh, and uh, just the uh, the North Star quality of being around people that do what you want to do. Yeah, you've but, been
2: researching uh, you know and doing projects during. Quarantine. I'm not sure if we should still call this era quarantine. I don't know what to call it—the extended homestay. Have you have you noticed a difference? Has it been difficult for you?
0: It's been phenomenally difficult uh, because uh, I, I the collaborative aspect of it and the uh, the auditioning aspect. You know, I I would walk around the newsroom and you know I started there. I was 21 years old uh, and I worked there for 21 years and I would read my lead. I would recite it to people and they would say something and I would go back and I'd fix it. And and I just, by the time I made it from one of the newsroom to the other, I had finished the story because every single person told me and they didn't know Well, maybe they did. I didn't know that I was doing that. It just kind of happened because I would get nervous energy and start walking around. You know, now uh, there's no place to walk and there's no way to talk to. So I just sort of, uh, I just sit there and kind of grind the gears and it's, it's a lot less uh, writing. It is, no longer enjoyable because of it like the entire it was like a a social activity for me you know yeah Uh,
2: and it sounds it sounds really great because you could you can have the best of both worlds of getting up and kind of stretching your legs and taking a break and like not working but also you are also working
0: yeah that's right it and now work
2: just feels like work all the time
0: that's right and and it was a tough room you know like i mean there's I mean, it's really great people in there. like, you know, there was literally, I, there was like four people at one field surprises that I sat next to, you know, clearly I'm bringing the curve down of uh, the of uh one of them has actually got a new movie coming out. Uh, J.R. uh got a new movie with George Clooney coming out about his childhood, uh, uh, a movie about, uh, adapting book about growing up in a bar, uh, the tender bar instead of the bartender. Mm-hmm but we should see if if we get JR. on the show. I haven't talked to him for years, but one of the three or four best writers I ever worked with, Uh, just a phenomenal talent. Definitely, uh,
2: that would be super cool.
0: It was just fun just having access to people like that and, and, uh, you know, crusty people. And, uh, you know, there was an old cops reporter who had had a clip-on tie that he kept tacked to the wall. Uh, Mm -hmm. So if he had to go to court, he could just grab it, stick it on uh and he would leave with a soda in his back pocket and he would sit down and he would use his rather substantial uh belly as a table uh in court he would just put the notebook right on top of it and just start taking notes mm-hmm. with the soda in his back pocket and his clip-on tie if you remembered it and, you know it's just fantastic characters it was like uh david runyon The kind of uh the textures of it were great i love it if anybody ever wants to uh publish a book about newsrooms I'm your guy
2: yeah it's been weird because you know all of my jobs have been during quarantine so I kind of don't know anything else so I mean I'm grateful that I can be in the middle of the country and work in publishing as I know a lot of people are getting into the industry but at the same time I think things are going to inevitably go back (laughs) uh, I think another thing that people romanticize about 70s 60s you know pre now new york and working in the comics and publishing there is that the rent wasn't <laughs> wasn't so expensive yeah like I, I love the stories harlan ellison would tell of you know running to the pulps getting a story hammering it out in one night and he's got all his rent money and he can go buy pizza yeah. and that just seems just totally <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh bizarre to me like you could afford rent with one day of, well grueling but you know intense work I'd, sure. I'd do that in the middle of in the middle of manhattan
0: yeah that's <laughs> no, a good point it's a real good point and yeah there's all kinds of trade-offs and different things you know i mean crime was so much more it's like yeah. you know, a really fearsome part of people's life back then too but uh yeah new york has certainly changed a lot it will continue to do so but it's uh yeah I, I think it's it's dangerous to over be overly nostalgic or yeah uh, to fight the changing times but uh i'm kind of glad that i got at least the tail end of that news error. Mm-hmm. it was really it was it really suited my uh, my sensibilities my rhythm
2: it's always good to hear from you and walt um you know we try to give our listeners different cross sections of all sorts of areas in history so yeah. i think we've covered a broad reach today
0: absolutely absolutely and uh i love the conversations about creativity and how it's changing i think it's actually really useful to people so mm-hmm. uh,
2: he had so good. many so many tips that like were so you know small but so evident like as we were talking i was doing that line thing with the forearm i was trying to draw an arm and i was like this is this is very handy
0: <laughs> yeah yeah. I love stuff like that. I love yeah. that too. Like just the, uh, there's a book uh, called how to draw a Marvel Comics way that came out in the seventies. Yeah. 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 Yeah, And I used to sit and study that. I love the the uh, tricks of the trade. My yeah, comics was,
2: club in college, we had uh, one copy of that book and like, you know, circles would form around it during our meetings, you know, as people were all trying to get reference images and like just just read it it was it was a kind of yeah. again you talk about stanley's appeal it's just this extremely fun artifact Absolutely. <laughs> um Absolutely. in a it was almost like an indiana jones type you know everyone was just
0: yeah. in its glow <laughs>
2: that's great it had a it did have a glow it had a like a, a young happy it scrappy did. glow yeah, yeah.
0: I I got, there's another book like that called, uh, well, it's different, but Marvel put out called the Fumenti, Marvel Fumenti book. I think I I might be saying Mm. that wrong. But Fumenti is when you put words on photographs, like captions. Yeah. There was a joke book uh, about the Marvel bullpen and about all the people that were part of it. and I'll I'll see if I can track it down and I'll show it to you. You, You'll get a kick out of it. If you like the the Marvel art, you would love this.
2: Yeah, because that comes from italian like they're they're you know the fume, the air the kind of smoke is that's how the the bubbles oh, that makes in sense. comics are drawn so
0: yeah well, i think is, yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think you're exactly right i think you're exactly right and the cover of this is a uh, uh, dr doom but he's got his faceplate off his mask and it's stanley <laughs> and he looks kind of like groucho marx what more could you want than that i don't know so But we'll see you next time. Uh, That was a lot of fun.
2: All right. Thanks so much. Bye.
0: Bye.